0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. This October, uh, Holly, you and I had a pretty exciting time on the podcast because you came to visit me. I did. I brought camera and sound people. <laughs> you did. I make it sound like this was like just a trip for funsies, but no, it was a trip to basically go on a video recording extravaganza field trip, uh, with two of our House Stuff Works video crew, Casey and Paul, and the four of us spent a lot of time over three days interviewing people and recording videos and seeing amazing historical sites. Uh it was both fun. And exhausting.
1: Super exhausting, but super duper fun.
0: Yeah, Uh, I think even more exhausting for Casey and Paul. They did so much of the heavy lifting by nature of being the video and sound people.
1: (laughs) Yes, both literally and figuratively, they did a lot of heavy lifting.
0: Yes, yes. You and I helped carry whenever we could, but, you know, we can't be in front of the camera and also holding it. That doesn't really work uh, with our setup. So... The first stop that we made was at the Royal House and Slave Quarters in Medford, Massachusetts. And the Royal House was home to Isaac Royal and his family during the 18th century. And the Royals were the largest slave-only, slave-owning family in Massachusetts. And they had an enslaved workforce both at their Medford home and on sugar plantations in Antigua, which is a big part of how the Royals made all that money. There is already a video on our website that tells more of the story of the royals and their enslaved workforce and how those lives intertwine together uh, on the property. And we're going to put a link to it in the show notes and on our our social media and all of that kind of stuff when this episode comes out. There are also some more videos already out and coming soon from that trip, which we are really excited about and will also be sharing uh, on our website and social media um, as those are ready today's episode of the podcast is also inspired by our trip to the Royal House Museum there's a lot that we don't know about the people who were enslaved when it was still a home and uh, there's documentation for about 60 enslaved people over two generations of royal ownership there on the Massachusetts property but the actual number was probably quite a lot higher on one enslaved woman in particular stands out, Belinda Sutton, who successfully petitioned for compensation for her years of enslaved labor
1: on the royal property. And by the time Belinda petitioned for compensation, the royal family was already incredibly wealthy. And just for clarity, uh, I feel like we should point out that when we say the royals again, it's R-O-Y-A-L-L, it's a proper name. Even though you mentioned that his name was Isaac Royal, we just want to make entirely clear (laughs) they were not actual royalty. Uh, And this family was by this point incredibly wealthy, but they did not start out incredibly wealthy. Isaac Royal Sr., born 1672, came from a New England family of relatively modest means. But that changed after he purchased a sugar plantation in Antigua. This was during the
0: era of the triangle trade, that interconnected trading system that relied on enslaved Africans, crops like sugar and cotton, and products made from those crops, like rum and cloth. By trading mainly in rum, sugar, and enslaved Africans, Isaac Royal Sr. became very wealthy. It's a common misperception that in North America, only the southern economy relied on slavery. But in reality, a lot of the wealth in New England and other other northerly areas was connected directly to the slave trade and on industries that
1: relied on slave labor. For a time, the royal family actually lived in Antigua, but in 1737, Isaac Sr. decided to relocate back to New England, and his reasons for doing so were not specifically recorded. But we do know that the year before, a series of gruesome executions had been carried out on Antigua in response to the threat of a slave revolt.
0: Whether this revolt really was in the works continues to be the subject of some historical debate, and it certainly would not have been the first occurrence of a slave resistance effort on the island if it was. An enslaved man known as Prince Klaas confessed to having planned a massive uprising that would not only have overthrown the island's planters, but also would have massacred its white population."
1: However, there isn't much physical evidence to support the idea that such a vast uprising was really imminent. So while some historians are completely convinced that it was, others suspect that the white slave owners and the court, who were vastly outnumbered by the island's enslaved population, exaggerated what was actually a much smaller threat, possibly as a product of their own fear. The executions,
0: however, were definitely real, with five people being broken on a wheel, six gibbeted, and 77 burned at the stake. One of the royal's enslaved overseers was among those burned at the stake, and another was uh, reprieved at the stake in exchange for information he had. So it while it's not written down anywhere exactly what prompted them to go back to uh, to, to New England, it's pretty reasonable to suspect that the Royals went back because they feared for their safety.
1: To prepare for the family's arrival back in Massachusetts, Isaac Royal Sr. bought a piece of property in Medford, which is called Ten Hills Farm. And this was a 500-acre property that housed a colonial farmhouse, which was expanded into a three-story Georgian mansion, along with barns and other outbuildings. There was also
0: a slave quarters, which still stands today and is the only freestanding slave housing still left in the north. The structure that became the slave quarters started out as an out kitchen or a separate kitchen that would allow people to cook in hot weather without heating up the house. And that was standing before the rest of the quarters were added onto it. The
1: museum on the property today includes both the mansion and the slave quarters. And when the royals took up residence there at Ten Hills Farm, they had at least 27 enslaved Africans with them. Isaac Sr. died in 1739,
0: and Isaac Jr., one of his two surviving children, inherited most of the estate. At this point, the royals were one of the wealthiest families in Massachusetts, and Isaac Jr. and his wife Elizabeth were very prominent in society, living a life of absolute luxury and holding lavish parties, and for Isaac's part, also holding public office.
1: With the approach of the Revolutionary War, Isaac Jr. fled Massachusetts, leaving his mansion, most of his physical property, and more than 20 enslaved people behind. Apparently, he had some sympathies with the cause for independence, but he also had a lot of financial reasons to stay loyal to the crown. He tried to get passage back to Antigua, but he couldn't, and instead he went to Nova Scotia just before the Battle of Lexington in 1775. A year later, he joined his daughter's families in England, and he died there of smallpox in 1781. In his will, Isaac Jr. left money to Harvard,
0: which was used to endow the university's first law professorship. The shield of Harvard Law School was, for this reason, originally modeled after the Royal Family coat of Arms, the royal professorship still exists, but the law school agreed to retire the shield and replace it with a new one in March of 2016. And as part of the same protests that led to this decision, students actually also occupied a lounge on campus and renamed it Belinda Hall after Belinda Sutton, who we will be talking more about in a moment.
1: Basically, now is the moment <laughs> that we
0: will be talking more about her.
1: The moment has arrived. Uh Belinda was mentioned in Isaac Jr.'s will as well saying, quote, I do also give unto my said daughter, my Negro woman Belinda, in case she does not choose her freedom. If she does choose her freedom to have it, provided that she gets security, that she shall not be a charge to the town of Medford. And he also instructed his executor to pay Belinda 30 pounds for three years. However, by the time of his death, Isaac Jr. actually
0: no longer had a lot of his property in Massachusetts. A lot of it had been confiscated during the war, and some of the people who had been enslaved there had been, there, had been freed, and others had been sold elsewhere. In later documents, Belinda, who was referenced uh, in his will, is called Belinda Sutton, a widow. But we don't actually know who her husband was or when she married him. Some of the earliest documents that reference her uh, present her last name as royal, but it was common for enslaved people to be given their owners surnames.
1: Belinda had at least two children, a son named Joseph and a daughter. Uh, we're guessing on the pronunciation of whether it's Prine or Priney, but it's P-R-I-N-E, who were baptized in Medford in 1768. And it appears that her son was sold away from her, possibly at the same time that she was freed. Although the commonwealth did
0: manumit Belinda along with at least some of the other people who were confiscated from the royal estate they didn't really make provisions for her sur- her survival afterward and we will talk about how that led to her petition after a quick word from a sponsor <laughs> When Belinda was freed, she and her daughter made their way to Boston to try to start a new life among the free black people living there. But by this point, Belinda was elderly and her daughter was also not well. Because she had spent most of her life working for no pay, Belinda had essentially nothing to live on and no way to support
1: herself and her daughter. On February 14th, 1783, Belinda presented a petition to the Massachusetts General Court. It began, quote, Commonwealth of Massachusetts to the Honorable, the Senate and House of Representatives in general court assembled. The petition of Belinda, an African, humbly shows that 70 years have rolled away since she on the banks of the Rio de Valta received her existence. The mountains covered with spicy forests, the valleys loaded with the richest fruits spontaneously produced. Joined to that happy temperature of air to exclude excess. Would have yielded her the most complete felicity had not her mind received early impressions of the cruelty of men whose faces were like the moon and whose bows and arrows were like the thunder and the lightning of the clouds. The
0: Rio de Volta is what's uh, called the Volta River today and what was at that point known as the Gold Coast and it's now Ghana. That was where Belinda had lived until about the age of 12, where, as she described in the petition, she was in a sacred grove with her parents paying devotions to Oricha and, quote, an armed band of white men driving many of her countrymen in chains ran into the hallowed
1: sh- Shade. Referring to herself in the third person, she goes on, quote, She was ravished from the bosom of her country, from the arms of her friends, while the advanced age of her parents, rendering them unfit for servitude, cruelly separated her from them forever.
0: After she describes her passage across the Atlantic and her arrival on a new continent, she states that she worked for 50 years for Isaac Royal until after the war before concluding, quote, The face of your petitioner is now marked with the furrows of time and her frame feebly bending under the oppression of years, while she, by laws of the land, is denied the enjoyment of one morsel of that immense wealth, a part whereof has been accumulated by her own industry and the whole augmented by her servitude. Wherefore, casting herself at the feet of your honors, as to a body of men formed for the extirpation of vassalage, for the reward of virtue, and the just return of honest industry, she, ple- she prays that such allowance may be made her out of the estate of Colonel Royal, as will prevent her and her more infirm daughter from misery in the greatest extreme, and scatter comfort over the short and downward path of their lives, and she will
1: ever pray." So in five paragraphs, Belinda describes her childhood in Ghana, her capture, the Middle Passage, her arrival, and the fact that she spent most of her life helping to build the wealth of the royal family, when she herself was not allowed any portion of that wealth or even to own any property. And she ends by asking for reparations, a payment of damages for having been wronged, specifically to be taken out of the estate of the man she worked for without being compensated for all that time. Some of the
0: petition's passages aren't necessarily meant to be read completely literally. For example, the word uh, oricha is yoruba, and it's a word that means deity, But Yoruba was spoken a little farther west than the Gold Coast where Belinda would have been from. So it's not entirely clear where Belinda or perhaps the person who helped her write this petition might have learned it or how they might have used
1: it. The description of Belinda's capture also specifies that her captors were white. However, it's far more likely that she was initially captured by other Africans further inland before being taken to the coast and sold to white slave traders. You can learn more about this aspect of the slave trade in our past podcasts on Dahomey and the royal palaces of Abomey. Describing her abductors as white may have been an intentional effort to appeal to the moral sensibilities of the white judges or to resist attempts to shift the blame for slavery onto Africans who captured the slaves rather than on the Europeans who created the demand for them.
0: You will still see people trying to make this argument on the Internet today. Most likely, Belinda herself was illiterate. Her signature on this and other petitions is an X. And her most likely assistant in creating this petition was a man named Prince Hall. He had been enslaved from birth around 1735, and then he had been freed in 1770. After becoming freed, he became an activist and an abolitionist in Boston, where he was also the founder of an African Masonic Lodge he helped author at least two petitions for a general manumission in in Massachusetts. And we will talk a little bit more about these other petitions that were also presented during Belinda's life and around the same time a little bit later in the show.
1: Belinda's petition also quickly became part of a growing body of anti-slavery literature. Quaker abolitionists distributed copies, and the New Jersey Gazette reprinted it in its entirety on June 18th of 1783. Soon, this petition was being reprinted in other newspapers and anti-slavery journals on both sides of the Atlantic. In at least one British case, there were quite a number of creative liberties basically rewriting this legal petition into a slave narrative in the first person.
0: In terms of the ruling, Belinda's petition was successful. In 1783, the court awarded her and her daughter an annual pension of 15 pounds 12 shillings to be paid out of the profits of the royal estate. However, the estate only paid this
1: pension for a year and then ignored Belinda's repeated requests for it. In 1787, Belinda went back to court to try to force the royal estate to pay the pension as ordered. And the court once again found in her favor. The estate did make its payments for three years before stopping again, leading Belinda back to court in 1790. And after payments stopped once again, she had to submit yet another petition in 1793. And once again, the ruling was in her favor.
0: From there, there's really no record of her. Until Willis Hall, who had been the executor of Isaac Royal Jr.'s estate, requested that he be granted the rest of the money in the state treasury, saying, quote, two family servants who were left behind, end quote, had then died. Presumably, one of the people he is talking about was
1: Belinda, and that was in 1799. And Belinda's petition was by far not the first nor the only petition connected to slavery to be presented in Massachusetts courts, as we mentioned just a moment ago. And we're gonna talk more about this topic after we first pause for a word from one of our fantastic sponsors.
0: Belinda's petition was part of ongoing legal efforts of enslaved and formerly enslaved people to advocate for themselves through Massachusetts courts. Uh, A lot of these were petitions for freedom. There were enough of those that uh, there are definitely sources that misreport Belinda's uh, petition as being one for her freedom, which it was not. The Anti-Slavery Petitions Massachusetts Dataverse at Harvard has a huge collection of anti-slavery and anti-segregation documents, including
1: Belinda's petitions, online. As early as 1770, individual enslaved people in Massachusetts were suing their owners in court for their own freedom or for compensation for their labor or for both. And some of these suits were, in fact, successful.
0: Petitions for general freedom for all people enslaved in Massachusetts started before the Revolutionary War as well. Enslaved people submitted six different petitions for general emancipation between 1773 and 1777 alone. Prince Hall, who probably helped Belinda craft her petition, had submitted two of these in the late 1770s, asking for a general emancipation, protection against being kidnapped back into slavery, financial help for former slaves who wanted to settle in Africa, and public education access for black
1: students. Many of these early petitions were connected directly to the language the Patriot cause was using to frame the Revolutionary War and the wish for the colonies to be freed from British rule. They called on the courts to recognize that the inalienable right to freedom was not limited only to white people. These 1770s petitions prompted one bill to abolish slavery in Massachusetts, although it was ultimately unsuccessful. Some of the petitions also drew from the Bible, citing Old Testament
0: passages requiring the freedom, the freeing of slaves every seven years with those freed slaves being compensated. In one case, petitioners submitted a pamphlet by James Swan, who was a member of the Sons of Liberty and a participant in the Boston Tea Party, which attacked slavery from numerous
1: angles, including the biblical one. It's possible that Belinda's petition was patterned after or inspired by the petition of Anthony Vassal of Cambridge, Massachusetts. He had submitted a petition in 1781 requesting the title to land owned by his former owner, John Vassell, as compensation for his years of unpaid labor. Before being enslaved under John Vassell, Anthony and his wife had lived in Medford, where they had been owned by Isaac Royal Jr.'s sister, Penelope Vassal.
0: John Bassel was a loyalist who had been exiled and whose estate had been confiscated, and Anthony successfully argued that he was owed reparations for having worked on that land where his wife and their children had also been enslaved. Although he wasn't awarded the title to the land that he asked for, he was granted an annual pension of 12 pounds out of the proceeds of the estate.
1: It was, in fact, court rulings that would eventually end slavery in Massachusetts. In 1781, Elizabeth Freeman, then known as Mum Bett, successfully sued her owner for freedom under the grounds that the newly adopted Massachusetts Constitution forbade it in Article 1. Quote, all men are born free and equal and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties. That of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, in fine, that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness.
0: That same year, an enslaved man known as Quak Walker escaped from Nathaniel Jennison. And when Jennison found Walker, he beat him, leading Walker to sue him for assault and battery. This led to a series of countersuits ending with Commonwealth versus Jennison in 1783. During the instructions to the jury, Chief Justice Cushing stated, quote, And upon this ground, our constitution of government, by which the people of of this commonwealth have solemnly bound themselves, sets out with declaring that all men are born free and equal, and that every subject is entitled to liberty, and to have it guarded by the laws, as well as life and property, and in short, is totally repugnant to the idea of being born slaves." This being the case, I think the idea of slavery is inconsistent with our own conduct and constitution. There can be no such thing as perpetual servitude of a rational creature unless his liberty is forfeited by some criminal conduct or given up by personal consent or contract.
1: Commonwealth versus Jennison effectively ended slavery in Massachusetts although there continued to be some people enslaved for some time afterward particularly under the guise of indentured servitude
0: that is belinda's petition there are a lot of uh people and articles that describe belinda's first petition as the first petition for uh for reparations for slavery to exist in the united states i think that's a little uh Oversimplified not to fault anybody (laughs) in that a lot of these petitions um, were really difficult to access until that uh, big Harvard database that we talked about a little bit earlier was online and it became a lot easier to search through them. Uh, It made those documents a lot more accessible to people. Um, But Belinda's petition definitely is part of a much greater legal effort that was ongoing in Massachusetts for years. Um, to try to, at least on an individual basis, compensate some, uh, some previously enslaved people for basically the damage that was done to them by, uh, having them be part of building their owner's wealth while forbidden to, to, you know, accumulate any wealth or possessions of their own.
1: How's the listener mail looking this time around? I've got some listener
0: mail. <laughs> Uh, this is from Christina, and it adds a little bit of information to our recent podcast uh, on the Dakota War and the Whitestone Hill Massacre. And she says, I started listening to your podcast this summer and I adore them. I was excited to listen to your recent podcast on the Dakota War of 1862 as I finished writing a novel on that last year. As I'm sure you know from your research, the topic is both interesting and emotionally difficult to study. The brutalities on both sides were hard to stomach, 23 counties in Minnesota were virtually depopulated. Up to 300 Dakota died at Fort Snelling that winter, and 6,000 were removed from Minnesota permanently. Some estimates as to the death toll of the war range as high as 800 civilians. The most civilians killed on American soil as the result of hostile action only exceeded by 9-11 I was also able to visit southern Minnesota this year, including New Ulm and the ruins of Fort Ridgely. There is a monument there to the fort's civilian defenders, including several women, who ran into the thick of battle to collect spent bullets to melt down and make more. The fact that hundreds of civilians and soldiers survived almost two weeks in a fort that originally did not even have a wall surrounding the buildings is incredible. My book focused on the stories of heroism from both settlers and the Dakota. Many of the Peace Party were Christian and lived, quote, in civilization before the war, meaning that they lived like the white settlers. They were scornfully referred to as, quote, cut hairs by other tribe members and were forced to join the uprising under threat of death. These peaceful Dakota sheltered captives, led other captives to freedom and fought Uh, with the white soldiers against the war party. If you want more information from the Dakota side of things, I highly recommend Through Dakota Eyes Narrative Accounts of the Minnesota Indian War of 1862 edited by Gary Clayton Anderson and Alan R. Woolworth. I so appreciate your dedication to sharing your love and knowledge of history to all your listeners. My goal in writing is to put the story back into history and you ladies display that perfectly in your podcasts. Uh, And then she sends a couple of podcast ideas. Thank you so much, Christina. I will see if I can find a link to where folks can find that book. And I will put a link to it in our show notes. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we are at history podcast at how We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash history. And on Twitter at missed history. Our Tumblr is missed history.tumblr.com. And we are also on Pinterest and Instagram at missed in history. Uh, you can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and learn a whole lot about anything your heart desires. And you can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, where you will find show notes to all of our episodes. You will find the video we talked about at the top of the show and more videos that we are working on now. Uh, you can find an archive also of every podcast we have ever done. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com.